Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Jessica, the podcast where my goal is to give quality medical information to help anyone out there who cares for children. On today's podcast, my guest is dermatologist Dr. David Reed. This episode is packed with clear, practical advice about three skin conditions that I commonly see dandruff, keratosis pilaris, otherwise known as KP, and moles. Dr. Reed is a very accomplished dermatologist. He graduated from Harvard Medical School, he completed his dermatology training at Northwestern University, and he is currently the Chief of Dermatology at Rush Medical Center. And a quick reminder before we get started, if you are enjoying this podcast, I would be so appreciative if you would share it with anyone who you think may benefit from learning this information. And thank you to anyone who has already left a five-star review. I do read all of the comments and I truly appreciate them. All right, now on to the interview with Dr. David Reed common question that I get that comes up, dandruff. Can you quickly touch upon how parents should approach dandruff and what things they can use to treat general dandruff? Absolutely. Such a common condition as well usually occurs in, it it can occur in infants and then there's usually a break and it doesn't occur again until around the time when the oil glands or what are called the sebaceous glands become more active during puberty. And so that occurs, uh, and then the, the dandruff, or what we call the medical term for dandruff, is seborrheic dermatitis. So that flaking of the skin, or, or the scalp, I should say, commonly, sometimes you can get redness and itching as well, can occur not only on the scalp, but the ears, the eyebrows, around the nose, on the face, even sometimes the chest, the back, um, and other areas as well. So uh a variety of factors to consider there. Also, another condition that can be inflammatory. Um, there's a little microorganism that lives on the skin that is thought to play a role there. So, some of the the you know for mild dandruff or mild seborrheic dermatitis, great over the counter products that one can start with. A couple ingredients that are available in, in various forms um, that you can get uh, would be things like selenium sulfide, and that can come in a shampoo, for example. Um, or a cream or a lotion. Um, ketoconazole is another uh, uh, great uh, ingredient that can have activity against that microorganism. Uh, zinc pyrithyroid is another excellent ingredient. So shampoos, for example, that have one of those three ingredients, ketoconazole, selenium sulfide, or zinc pyrithyroid is, is an excellent starting point. And integrating that as part of the daily roots or However, often one wants to use or shampoo the, the scalp, whether that's, um, you know, a few times a, a, a week or, or um, even daily um, can be really effective. I will often recommend that patients alternate those. So you don't have to just use one product. You don't just have to use, for example, selenium sulfide shampoo. You can use that one day and then the next day you can use uh, or two days later you can use uh, a ketoconazole shampoo. Because then you get the benefit of two different um, ingredients, two different mechanisms of action, and in combination, that can be really effective. Another tip I would give is that if you do have, you know, people sometimes don't make the association of the dandruff they get on their scalp with the flaking they get on the eyebrows or around their nose or, or whatnot. And so that's the same condition. And, and they even get it on their chest sometimes. So you can use that, that same shampoo um, as a kind of a face wash, which some people think a shampoo is a face wash. They always think that's a strange concept. And I suppose it is, but it's actually totally okay. You can use it around the eyebrows, kind of let it sit there for a few minutes and then rinse it off. You can use it around the nose, the chest. It's just consider it like a cleanser and it can be really effective there as well. 
just to help with familiarity with those listening. If you've ever heard of Head and Shoulders or T Gel, those are the same sulfide products. Yeah, yeah, uh, those are great. Neutrogena makes the uh, products. Head and Shoulders, um, uh, you know, Ketoconazole, Nizerol shampoo uh, are a couple of, um, of brands. Um, you know, several different Celsius and Blue. You know, different different brand names there that you can you can look for. The important thing would be to look for that active ingredient. Um, salicylic acid sometimes uh, as a shampoo can be found. That ingredient that I mentioned for acne can also be helpful because that's a, it's also a keratolytic, which means that it can thin out some of that flaking, especially if one has a lot of buildup of excessive flaking or or uh, excessive kind of skin on the, the scalp, for example. Integrating something with a little salicylic acid, which can be over-the-counter in a shampoo, can be really effective. And once they see improvement of dandruff, do you recommend keeping some of the shampoo in the routine? Yeah, because it tends to be also a chronic condition. You know, many of the conditions in dermatology that we confront are chronic. And so uh, that's another uh, common uh, uh, issue we face is that patients will, we will, we'll, or, or, or people will, will use something, it'll get better, and then It'll, it'll, you know, they'll stop it and it'll come right back again. And, and unfortunately, we don't have cures for some of these conditions. We don't have something, a, a pill or a, a cream that we can give and it'll just go away forever. But we do have great treatments that if we use them on an intermittent basis, we'll control it so that you use them intermittently and it kind of stays away. So set, so dandruff or seborrheic dermatitis is one of those conditions. So once you get it cleared up, you can start to decrease the frequency of how often you use the shampoo and, um, you know, just find that frequency that works for you. Some people might, it might be once a week. Um, you just kind of slowly uh, taper it down, as we say, or decrease the frequency at which you use it. And it's a little bit of experimentation there to find what cadence or what frequency you need to use it at for it to be effective. Um, and once you find that you'll probably need to use it kind of off and on indefinitely to keep it away. If you're doing really well after, you know, a few months and you want to try to stop it, um, that's okay. But just anticipate that it might come back. and You might need to rev back up again. Thank you so much for this. This is so helpful. Now, moving on to a condition called keratosis pilaris or what we'll call often KP for short, do you have a recommended treatment for families that have KP? Right. Yeah. So really common condition, um, kind of like a version, I often will say, of normal skin in a way. It's not a, it's not a, 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 a skin disease per se. It's more of a, um, an, a, 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 just a, a different version of skin because it's so common and it, it's something that people – uh, it's not dangerous to people, but people often don't particularly care for. It's another condition that will be chronic. So it is something that um, needs to be continuously treated in order to keep it away. Really common, for example, on the upper arms, that's probably the most common area kind of between the shoulder and the elbow. Um, but it can occur in other areas too, including sometimes on the cheeks or the thighs or other areas. Uh, as far as products for that go, there's a few different products that are available. So one of them is called uh, ammonium lactate or um, a version of lactic acid, which is a kind of a, a version of a, uh, a again, a, what's called a keratolytic or a, a, a version of a, a moisturizer that can you can acquire over the counter. Um, there's also uh, something um, called urea, uh, which is another um, 
for lack of a better term, moisturizer that one can acquire and uh, use. And so using that on the skin to kind of thin that out and using it consistently every day is, um, is, a, is a great choice. And those are available at lower concentrations over the counter. Um, you know, Amlactin makes, uh, for example, uh, a product. CeraVe makes a, a product called Rough and Bumpy. Um, it's an apt name for the, the condition. And it's a, a combination of, of product uh, or ingredients uh, that can be effective. So there's a number of great choices, but usually ammonium lactate, urea um, are great, great products. And then if it's particularly bad, uh, you can see a dermatologist and we can uh, prescribe stronger concentrations of those products that can be effective. Sometimes the, the KP or the keratosis pilaris can get a little inflammatory and a little red or even itchy. And we use some um, anti-inflammatories, either uh, cortisone-based medicines, or if one does not want to use a, a cortisone-based medicine, we can use a, a, a non-steroidal alternative. And I like to point out to families that this really is more of a cosmetic issue, correct? It doesn't itch kids. It doesn't bother kids. No, it typically doesn't present. Number one, it's not dangerous. Um, it typically is not symptomatic. Uh, very uh, seldomly, it can be a little inflamed, as I said, maybe a little red, maybe a little itchy, but that vast majority, and if that's the case, we can maybe treat it a little bit with something anti-inflammatory. But I would say the vast, vast majority of kids um, not symptomatic in any way, more of just a look or a feel that is bothersome. But many people, you know, just kind of don't don't even worry about it and kind of um, sometimes choose not to treat it. It's really personal choice. But if they want to treat it, we do have options. Do you notice a relationship with keratosis pilaris and eczema or genetics? For sure. Yeah, for sure. It is more common in, in uh, probably it has a genetic basis and is, is definitely more associated with eczema. So that's a common association. We know that. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes with eczema, of course, or atopic dermatitis, a good moisturizing regimen is really key and a foundation of treatment. Um, and so integrating uh, that, that urea or that ammonium lactate in those areas is part of that, that treatment. Thank you. Now, lastly, common general dermatology question that comes up in my pediatric practice is moles. A lot of parents show me their children's moles. They want to know when to see a dermatologist. Can you touch upon moles and what are concerning signs of moles and when they should draw attention to a dermatologist? Right. So, um, you know, moles are, you know, something that develop, you know, naturally throughout, um, uh, the early stages of life. So they are in and of themselves, not necessarily worrisome, um, findings. Uh, I think some important considerations that, that parents should, should think about is number one, um, family history of melanoma, for example. So with moles, what we really worry about are primarily number one, first and foremost, melanoma. And so family history of melanoma is a, is a consideration. We know that melanoma does have a genetic basis and is more common in uh, first-degree relatives. So considering a family history of melanoma is something that people should be aware of and, and take into account. Um, there's different types of moles. There's congenital moles, which, uh, which kids are born with. Um, and those, uh, you know, we usually consider those based on size. And, and um, the smaller or medium-sized moles that, that kids are born with, they will grow with time. And as a kid grows, they will grow naturally. 
that's to be expected. So um, that's not worrisome in and of itself. And the risk of a, a mold uh, of, of that type developing into melanoma is thought to be very, very low. So that, that's generally a reassuring thing. It's not zero, but it is quite low. And so, um, you know, uh, in general, I would say that just because someone has a mole, it doesn't mean necessarily anything terribly worrisome. Um, now, if someone has, uh, if a kid has numerous moles, um, you know, over 50 or over 100, that does increase the risk of melanoma as well. So in those cases, um, that does that does warrant uh, an evaluation and, and uh, a visit with a dermatologist. Or if someone has a, a very large mole um, and something that is not that medium or small mole, but something that's very large, there is a, a bit of a higher risk of developing something in those moles. So um, there's a, a reason to visit there. Now, um, beyond that, of course, every case is a little bit different, but I would say that some things to look for is one, um, you, you know, one can always have an evaluation for a mole and, and um, see a dermatologist and, 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 and get some reassurance if one would like. Um, but uh, the, the important things to look for are changes uh, to the mole that uh, would reflect something different than just growth with the size of the child. So if the, the growth is or the mole is changing at a, in a way that is different than the, just the overall growth of the kid, if it's growing at a rapid rate uh, relative to the kid or if it's developing um, excessive kind of bumpiness or color change that looks out of proportion to um, the development of the kid as a whole. So it's normal for some level of, of growth and some level of bumpiness and maybe even some subtle color change. But if it's turning multiple colors or um, developing a particular kind of area that's becoming really elevated or, or ulcerated or bleeding or something like that, um, those would be the things that you would really want to look for. Um, or if there's a, a worrisome family history or um, numerous moles, I think those are all signs that once you see a dermatologist. So it sounds like rapid change is a definite red flag for concern. For sure. Rapid change uh, is probably the biggest one. And, and uh, beyond that, um, you know, it's a little bit subjective, but I would say, you know, most moles, um, a lot of melanoma develops in new moles rather than uh, pre-existing moles. So we often will see moles, we'll track them and see how they're changing. Uh, but if they're stable, that's a really reassuring thing. Do you ever talk about the ABCs with patients? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so that's a really helpful guide and um, well published. Um, you know, the, a, the asymmetry, border var variety, color, um, diameter, and then um, evolution. So the E is how it changes over time. So, um, you know, looking at those guides and, and one can, can look that up very easily uh, either on the AAD or elsewhere, but um, certainly a, a really helpful way to remember kind of what to look for in a mole. Um, and kind of consider and uh, a general guideline that will help, you know, a person think about when they might want to see a dermatologist. And I actually think it's helpful for people listening to look up examples of what melanomas look like, because I think it'll give a frame of reference. Exactly. And, it, you know, it, there's obviously a range of the, the way they can look. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's just helpful to give some idea of it. 
Um, you know, if there's concern, we're always happy to look and always happy to, 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 to consider things. And obviously there are other types of things that other than melanoma, that's not the only thing that something could be. There's, you know, you know, some other things like spits nevi and different things that can develop. A positive note I like to tell parents is that recently they found that melanomas, as rare as they are in children, they've even become more rare in the last 10 years. It's one of the few cancers where we've seen a decrease in prevalence in recent years. Yeah, that's, that's unusual, right? I mean, we're seeing increased prevalence in other areas, so that's encouraging. David, anything else you want to add? Uh, I think we touched on a number of great topics, uh, a number of great over-the-counter products that uh, hopefully your audience can can look for. But, you know, I think using those products um, are a great starting point. And then beyond that, always remember that uh, if one is not seeing the results they need, I, uh, it's, it's certainly... Um, really gratifying to us as dermatologists to be helpful to a patient or anyone who needs our help, even for something small or something that the patient might feel. Sometimes I, we see, I, I see a patient who feels embarrassed or feels like maybe they're, they're, they shouldn't be there. I, I, and I never, ever feel that that's the case. So, you know, if someone wants to make an appointment with the dermatologist, uh, please do so because um, no matter what it is, we are here to help. We want to make people feel the best they can about themselves. And that's certainly why we entered the field and, and, and anything we can do in that regard um, uh, for kids, for, for, for parents, anybody, um, that's what we're here to do. Dr. Reed, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, if you could take a moment and leave a five-star review wherever it is you listen to podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. It really makes a difference to help this podcast grow. You can also follow me on Instagram at AskDrJessica. See you next Monday.